Chapter Eleven of the Harbor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Harbor by Ernest Poole. Chapter Eleven. On the Manhattan side of the North River, from Twenty Third Street down for a mile, there stretches a deafening region of cobblestones and asphalt over which trucks by thousands go clattering each day. There are long lines of freight cars here, and snorting locomotives. Along the south shore are many saloons, a few cheap, decent little hotels, and some that are far from decent. And along the waterside is a solid line of dock sheds. Their front is one unbroken wall of sheet iron and concrete. I came up against this wall. Over the top I could see here and there the great round funnels of the ships, but at every passenger doorway and at every wide freight entrance I found a sign, no visitors admitted, and under the sign a watchman who would ungraciously take a cigar and then go right on being a watchman. There seemed no way to get inside. The old-fashioned mystery of the sea was replaced by the inscrutability of what some muckrakers called the pool. "'Don't worry,' Eleanor's father had said all very well, but I needed money. While I had been making with Eleanor those long and delightful explorations of the harbor and ourselves, at home my father's bank account had been steadily dwindling, and all that I had been able to make had gone into expenses. "'I don't know what to do,' said Sue, alone with me that evening. "'The butcher says he won't wait any longer. He has simply got to be paid this week.' I'll see what I can do, I said. I came back to my new hunting ground, and all night long I prowled about. I sipped large schooners of beer at bars, listening to the burly dockers crowded close around me. I watched the waterfront, empty and still, with acres of spectral wagons and trucks, and here and there a lantern. I had a long talk with a broken old bum who lay on his back in an empty truck, looking up at the stars and spun me yarns of his life as a cook on ships all up and down the world. Now and again in the small wee hours I met hurrying groups of men, women, and children poorly clad, and following them to one of the piers I heard the sleepy watchman growl, "'Steerage passengers over there!' I saw the dawn break slowly and everything around me grow bluish and unreal. I watched the teamsters come trampling along leading horses and harness them to the trucks. I heard the first clatter of the day. I saw the figures of dockers appear, more and more, I saw some of them drift to the docks. Soon there were crowds of thousands, and as stevedores there began bawling out names, gang after gang of men stepped forward, until at last the chosen throngs were marching in past the timekeepers. Hungrily I peered after them up the long cavernous dock-sheds. No visitors admitted. Then I went into a lunchroom for ham and eggs and a huge cup of coffee. I ate an enormous breakfast. On the floor beside me a cross and weary-looking old woman was scrubbing the dirty oilcloth there, but I myself felt no weariness. While all was still vivid and fresh in my mind, sitting there I wrote down what I had seen. A magazine editor said it would do. And so we paid the butcher. The same editor gave me a sweeping letter of introduction to all ocean liners. 
This I showed to a dock watchman who directed me upstairs. In the office above I showed it to a clerk who directed me to the dock superintendent, who read it and told me to go downtown. I recalled what Dillon had said about strings. Here was string number one, I reflected, and I followed it down Manhattan into the tall buildings, only to be asked down there just what it was I wanted to know. I don't want to know anything, I replied. I just want permission to watch the work. We can't allow that, was the answer of this harbor of big companies. At every pier that I approached I received about the same reply. At home Sue spoke of other bills, and now that I was in trouble, hard-pressed for money and groping my way about, I found myself missing Eleanor to a most desperate degree. Her face, her smiling blue-gray eyes, kept rising in my mind, sometimes with memories and hopes that permeated my whole view both of the harbor and my work with a warm, glad, expectant glow, but more often with no feeling at all but one of sickening emptiness. She was not here. The only way to get back to her was to make good with her father, and so I would not ask his aid or even go to him for advice. Testing me, was he? All right, I would show him. And I returned to my editor, whom my intensity rather amused. The joke of it is, he said, that they think down there you're a muckraker. I'll be one if this keeps on. But it won't, he replied. As soon as you've once broken in, and they see it's a glory story you want, you can't imagine how nice they'll be. I haven't broken in, I said. You will tomorrow, he told me, because Abner Bell will be with you. He's our star photographer. Wait till you see little Ab go to work. The place he can't get into hasn't been invented. Besides, the editor added, Abner is just the sort of chap to take hold of an author from Paris and turn him into a writer. And this Abner Bell proceeded to do. He was a cheerful, rotund little man with round, simple eyes and a smile that went all over his face. You see, he said when I met him the next day down at the docks, you can't ask a harbor to hold up her chin and look into your camera while you count. She's such a big, fat, noisy slob she wouldn't even hear you. You've got to run right at her and bark. Look here, old man, he was asking a watchman a few moments later, what's the name of the superintendent on the next pier down the line? Captain Towns. Towns? Towns? Is that Bill Towns? No, it's Ed. I wonder what's become of Bill. All right, brother, much obliged. See you again and he went on. Say, he asked the next watchman, is Eddie, I mean, Captain Towns upstairs? Sure he is, go right up. Thank you. Up we went to the office. Captain Towns, good morning. Well, sir, what can I do for you? The captain was an Englishman with a voice as heavy and deep as his eyes. Why, Captain, I'm sent here by the firm that's putting Peavy's Paris perfume on the market out in the Middle West. They're going in heavy on ads this fall, and I've got an order to hang around here until I can get a photo of one of your biggest liners. The idea is to run it as an ad, with a caption under it something like this. The Kaiser Wilhelm reaching New York with 20,000 bottles of Peavy's Best, direct from Paris. The Kaiser Wilhelm, said the captain ponderously, is a German boat. She docks in Hoboken, my friend. Of course she does, said Abner. 
and I can lug this heavy camera way over there if you say so, and hand ten thousand dollars worth of free ads to a German line, stick up pictures of their boat in little drugstore windows all up and down the Middle West. Do you know how to tell me to go away?' Captain Towns smiled heavily. "'No,' he said, "'I guess I don't. Here's a pass that'll give you the run of the dock.' "'Make it two, said Abner, "'and fix it so my friend and I can stick around for quite a while.' "'You're a pretty good liar,' I told him as we went downstairs. "'Oh, hell,' he answered modestly. "'Let's go out on the porch and get cool.' We went out on the open end of the pier and sat down on a wooden beam which Abner called a bulkhead. "'If we don't begin calling things names,' he remarked, "'we'll never get to feeling we're here. Let's just sit and feel for a while.' "'I've begun,' I replied." We sat in the shade of two wooden piles, with the glare of a midsummer sun all around us. The East River had been like a crowded creek compared to this wide expanse of water slapping and gleaming out there in the sun, with smoke shadows chasing over it all. There was the rough odor of smoke in the air from craft of all kinds as they scurried about. The high black bow of a canarder loomed at the end of the dock next ours. Far across the river the stout German liners lay at their berths, and they did not look like sea-hogs. What a change had come over the harbor since I had met that motor-boat! How all the hogs had waddled away, and the very smoke and the oil on the waves had taken on deep, vivid hues, as I had seen through Eleanor's eyes! What a strange, wonderful purple! her low voice seemed to murmur at my side. "'She's going away from here,' said Ab. I started. "'Who is?' "'That canarder. Look at the smoke pour out of her stacks. Got a cigarette about you?' "'No,' I answered gruffly. "'Damn!' In the slip on our other side a large freight boat was loading, and a herd of scows and barges were pressing close around her. These clumsy craft had cabins, and in some whole families lived. Harbor Gypsies, a good title, I had paid the butcher, but the grocer was still waiting. So I dismissed my motorboat and grimly turned to scows instead. Children by the dozen were making friends from barge to barge. Dogs were all about us, and they too were busy visiting. High up on the roof of a coal-lighter's cabin an impudent little sky terrier kept barking at the sooty men who were shoveling down below. One of these from time to time would lift his black face and good-humoredly call, "'Oh, you go to hell!' which would drive the small dog into frenzies. Most of the barges had derrick masts, and all these masts were moving. They rose between me and the sky, bobbing, tossing, and crisscrossing, filling the place with the feeling of life, the unending, restless life of the sea. An ear-shattering roar broke in on it all. Our canarder was starting. Smoke belching black from her funnels, the monster was beginning to move. But what was this woman doing close by us? Out of the cabin of a large barge she had dragged a little rocking-chair, and now she had brought out a baby all dressed up in its Sunday best and was rocking expectantly, watching the ship. Thundering to the harbor the canarder now moved slowly out. As she swept into the river the end of the pier was revealed to our eyes all black with people waving. They waved until she was out in midstream. Then, as they began to turn away, one plump, motherly-looking woman happened to glance toward us. 
"'Why, the cute little baby!' we heard her exclaim, and the next minute hundreds of people were looking. The barge-mother rocked serenely. Abner grabbed his camera and jumped nimbly down on the barge, where he took the baby's picture with the amused crowd for a background. "'The kid's name,' he remarked on his return, "'is Violetta Rosie. She was born at two a.m. at Pier 49. He was silent for a moment and then went on sententiously. Think what it'll mean to her, through all the storm and stress of life, to be able to look fondly back upon the dear old homestead. There's a punch to Violetta. Better run her in. I will, I said. And that little thing of mine, he queried modestly, about the dear old homestead? I've got it, I replied. I hand quite a few little things to writers, Abe continued cheerfully. If you'll just give me some idea of what it is you're looking for. I'm looking for the punch, I answered promptly. Then we'll get on fine, he said. The editor got me worried some. He said you'd trained in Paris. Oh, that was only a starter, I told him. Presently he went into the dock shed on his unending quest of the punch. And left to myself I got thinking. What did Paris know about us? De Maupassant's methods wouldn't do here. I noticed two painters in overall at work on that large freighter. With long brooms that they held in both hands, they were slapping a band of crude yellow paint along her scarred and rusted side. That was what I needed, the broom. All at once the harbor took hold of me hard, and exulting in its bigness, the bold, raw, splattering bigness of my native Yankee land, now for some glory stories, I said. I went into the dock shed, and there I stayed right through until night, till my mind was limp and battered from the rush of new impressions. For in this long sea station under the blue arc lights, in boxes, barrels, crates, and bags, tumbling, banging, crashing, came the products of this modern land. You could feel the pulse of a continent here, from the factories, the mines and mills, the prairies and the forests, the plantations and the vineyards, there flowed a mighty tide of things, endlessly both day and night. You could shut your eyes and see the long brown lines of cars crawl eastward from all over the land. You could see the stuff converging here to be gathered into coarse rope nets and swept up to the liners. The pulse beat fast and furious. It gangs at every hatchway you saw men heaving, sweating, you heard them swearing, panting. That day they worked straight through the night, for the pulse kept beating, beating, and the ship must sail on time. And now I too worked day and night. In the weeks that followed Abner Bell came and went many times, but for me it was my entire life. Though small of build I was tough and hard, I had not been sick for a day in years, and now I easily stood the strain. Day by day my story grew, my glory story of world trade. Watching, questioning, listening here, making notes, writing hasty sketches to help keep us going at home. Slowly I could feel this place yielding up its inner self, its punch and bigness, endless rush, its feeling of a nation young and piling up prodigious wealth. From the Custom House came fabulous tales of millionaires ransacking the world, rare old furniture, rugs and tapestries, paintings, jewels, gorgeous gowns poured in a dazzling torrent all that summer through the docks. One day on a Mediterranean ship, in their immaculate stalls de luxe, 
came two black Arab horses, glistening, quivering creatures, valued by the custom-house at twenty thousand dollars each. And into that same ship that week, as though in payment for these two, in dust and heavy smell of sweat I saw a thousand cattle driven, bellowing and lowing. I exulted in these symptoms of our crude and lusty youth. I watched my countrymen going abroad. Not only through the summer, but straight on into the fall they came by tens of thousands out of the West, people who had made some money and were going to blow it in, to buy things and to see things, to learn things and to eat things. One day at noon, on the end of a dock, when the ship was already far out in midstream and all the crashing music and cheers had died away, a meek old lady wiped her eyes and murmured very tearfully, "'I suppose they'll be eating their luncheon soon.' And then the loud voice of her daughter replied, "'Eat? Why, Ma, God bless their hearts, they'll sit on that boat and eat all day.' And I echoed her wish with a keen delight. God bless their hearts and stomachs. Oh, hungry, vigorous Yankee land so mightily young. Eat on, eat on. And the land ate on. My work here rose to a climax a week or two before Christmas, when the newest liner of them all pulled off a new world's record for speed. With the company's publicity man, who had become a friend of mine, I went on the health officer's tug down the bay to meet her, on the coldest, darkest night I've ever known on water. Shortly after nine o'clock the big boat's light gleamed off the hook and she bore down upon us. She came close, slowed down, and towered by our side, weird as a ghost with snow and ice in glimmering sheets on her steel sides. She did not stop. We caught a rope ladder and scrambled up, and at once we felt her speeding on. And she was indeed a story that night bellowing hoarsely now in warning to all small craft to get out of her way, she was rushing into the harbor. Suddenly she slowed again, and three dark mail-tugs ranged alongside, and through canvas chutes four thousand sacks of Christmas mail began to pour down while the ship moved on. Up her other side came climbing gangs of men who began to make ready her winches and open up her hatches. Now we were moving in close to the pier, with a whole fleet of tugs around us. Faint shouts rose in the zero night, toots and sharp whistles. One of the gangplanks was down at last, and two hundred dockers came up on the run. Off went the passengers and the luggage, reporters scurrying through the crowds. But the ship did not rest, for she was to sail again the next night. This was to be a world's record for speed. All night long the work went on, and I watched it from a deck above, going in now and then for food and hot drinks. On her dockside, forward, Christmas boxes, bales and packages were being whipped up out of her hold to the rattle of her winches. One sharp whistle and up they shot into the air till they swung some seventy feet above. Another whistle and down they whirled into the dockshed far below, from which a blaze of light poured up. At the same time she was coaling. Along the black wall of her other side, as I peered over the rail above, I saw far below a row of barges crowded with Italians. Powerful lights swung over their heads in the freezing wind, swung above black coal heaps and the lapping water. It was an inferno of shifting lights and long leaping shadows. I watched till daylight blotted out the yellow glare of the lanterns, 
Then I went home to get some sleep, and late that night when I came back I found her almost ready to sail. Out of taxis and automobiles chugging down in front of the pier the passengers were pouring in. Many were in evening clothes, some just come from dinners and others from box parties. The theaters had just let out. The rich warm hues of the women's cloaks, the gay headdresses here and there, and the sparkling earrings, immaculate gloves, and dainty wanton slippered feet kept giving flashes of color to this dark freezing ocean place. Most of these people went scurrying up into the warm gorgeous café of the ship which was run from a hotel in Paris. What had all this to do with the sea? "'Come on,' said the genial press agent. "'You're the company's guest tonight.' And while we ate and drank and smoked, and the tables around us filled with people whose ripples and bursts of laughter rose over the orchestra's festive throb and corks kept popping everywhere, he told me where they were going, these gay revelers, for their Christmas day. To London, Brussels, Berlin and Vienna, Paris, Nice, Monte Carlo, Algiers. "'Now come with me,' he said at last, and he took me along warm passageways to the row of cabins deluxe. First we looked into the bridal suite, to which one of the Pittsburgh makers of steel, having just divorced a homely old wife, was presently to bring his new bride, a ravishing young creature of musical comedy fame. They had been married that afternoon. A French maid was unpacking dainty shimmering little gowns, soft furry things, and other things of silk and lace, and hanging them up in closets. It was a large room, and there were other rooms adjoining and two big luxurious baths. The cost of it all was four thousand dollars for the five days. There were tall mirrors and dressing tables, there were capacious easy chairs. Low subdued lights were here and there, and a thick rug was on the floor. Over in one corner was a huge double bed of cream-colored wood with rich soft quilts upon it. Beside the bed in a pink satin cradle there lay a tiny Pekingese dog. "'Next,' he whispered. We peeped into the next stateroom, and there divided from her neighbors by only one thin partition, a sober, wrinkled little old lady in black velvet sat quietly reading her Bible. Soon she would be saying her prayers. "'Next,' he whispered, and in the cabin on her other side we caught a glimpse of two jovial men playing cards in gay pajamas with a bottle of scotch between them. Next, and as we went on down the row he gave me the names of an English earl, a Jewish clothing merchant, a Minnesota ranchman, a banker's widow from Boston, a Tammany politician, a Catholic bishop from Baltimore, a millionaire cheesemaker from Troy, and a mining king from Montana. "'How about that?' he asked at the end, for an American row deluxe. "'My God, it's great!' I whispered. There's only one big question here, he added. Your long respectable pedigrees and your nice little puritanical codes can all go to blazes. This big boat will throw em all overboard for you. If you can answer, I've got the price. End of chapter 11. Recording by Tom Weiss.